The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Here we go, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I am Jack Wilson, your host, Tommy Orange. We have a short story today, courtesy of the good folks at Storybound, a story for September. We've been doing one of these a month for the past couple of months, which helps me take a bit of a breather and recharge some batteries and read. (laughs) Just spent a few days catching up with correspondence, which was amazing. Took me a long time, but I'm glad to keep up with people who've been kind enough to email me. So I've got some emails for you today, some listener emails, and we're going to be doing something else. That's fun, I hope. We are going to explore the world of New York Review of Books personal ads, and then we'll have a radio drama or a story in the radio drama, radio theater, I guess we should say, with Tommy Orange. Tommy Orange, if you're not familiar with him, is on the faculty at the Institute of American Indian Arts MFA program. He's an enrolled member of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma. He was born and raised in Oakland, California. He currently lives in Angels Camp, California. He's the author of There There, which was one of the finalists for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize, a winner of the American Book Awards, was named one of the 10 best books of 2018 by the New York Times Book Review. It also won the Center for Fiction's first novel prize and was named one of the best books of the year by a very long list of publications. We are glad to have his story here today, Copperopolis. It's hosted by Jude Brewer with sound design and music from Ryan Dan of Holland Patent Public Library comes courtesy of Storybound and the Podglomerate and Lit Hub Radio. But first, before we get there, let's hear from some listeners. First up is a message from Cecily. She writes, I am not given to weeping easily, but was moved to do so by the Brothers Karamazov podcast, The Weaving of Personal History, Sad Tenets of Life, and Literature, So Finely Done. Cecily. Hmm. Thank you, Cecily. The Brothers Karamazov episode. We got so many messages about that. Maybe the most ever, probably. It touched a chord, for sure. There's so much pain out there. So many reasons for pain. But also, so much humanity. Thank you very much for the kind words. Next message is from Anne. Oh, excuse me. Hello. Hello. Who is it? Ah. Hello, this is Bartleby, Mm. the Scrivener. Ah, yes, Bartleby. You might know me from the story by Herman Melville called... Uh. Yes? Bartleby, Mm -hmm. the Scrivener. I became famous for my catchphrase, I would prefer not to... So, when that irritating chatterbox Jack Wilson asked me to contribute to his podcast, I replied that (laughs) I would prefer not to. Mm -hmm. 
Then he asked me not to make a small monthly contribution. Well, naturally, I preferred not to not do that. So I signed up. Ah. <laughs> Won't you please join me in not not donating to the podcast? That heavy sigh is a man who knows when he's been outwitted. He did not, not contribute to the podcast. Okay, there he is, Bartleby, the spiritual father of existentialism. Well, thank you for being here, Bartleby, and reminding us of how we tricked you. The narrator never thought to apply reverse psychology. Maybe that was beneath Mr. Melville. Maybe you took a a devious scalawag, or was irritating chatterbox like Jack Wilson to come up with it. And it worked. You heard it for yourself. So there's Bartleby helping us ask for support, and Anne will too. Let's hear her message. Jack, I just hit upon your podcast yesterday and absolutely loved it. It was the show about Samuel Pepys. I have read many passages from his diaries over the years, but some of your comments and insights made me laugh out loud. Signed up to be a patron already, as I know I will be back for more. Thank you, Anne. Wow. Someone who's read the Peeps Diaries. Thank you, Anne, for your generous support and for the kind email. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. If you'd like to join Anne and sign up as a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash literature and join all the patrons there. Today, we'd like to thank new Patreon members Neil, Jeremy, Sue, Phil, Michelle, Keith, Maureen, Raphael, Susan, Tiffany, Steve, Timothy, and Paloswag. Your kindness and generosity are greatly appreciated. And here's some news, some headline-breaking news for us here. We are often asked for a way to make a contribution that's just a one-time thing. Patreon is a monthly recurring thing. Well, we have a virtual coffee system set up in our shop at historyofliterature.com slash shop. But this may be much easier. We have a new link as well if you use PayPal. It's a PayPal link, paypal.me slash jackwilson. J-A-C-K-E Wilson. We'll have the link in our show notes or If you'd like to use a credit card, you can still go to the virtual coffee system at the store's shop. But if you have a PayPal account, I think it lets you pay in any currency. You can pay in your home currency if you'd like. And throw a few coins in our cup. A buck a show. I heard that once on another podcast. We're asking for a buck a show. Well, I'm asking for a cup of coffee a month or a beer. If that's your beverage of choice for literary conversation, imagine the two of us sitting there. And you pick up the tab. A glass of wine. I'm not too fancy. Cheap wine's okay. But the podcast is free no matter what. We'll keep cranking them out. So don't worry if this is not a good time for you to toss a dollar or two our way. Next email is from Phil. Dear Jack, I hope my emails are not bothersome. I was really moved by your Primo Levi episode. I am Jewish, born in 1950, and fortunately, all my family that I know of were in the USA or the UK during the war. My family is from Belarus and Ukraine, so the ones I don't know about undoubtedly suffered greatly. I was raised on the knowledge of the Holocaust, however, so those themes strike me deeply. 
I've never read Levy. My only exposure was a movie based on one of his books over 20 years ago, starring John Turturro. I don't remember much about it, but I will read him soon. Probably the periodic table. Holocaust memoirs are sometimes too painful to read. One of the most meaningful things about your podcast is the deep empathy in your voice. It comes across as very heartfelt, and it means a lot to me, especially in this episode. I was starting to tear up while listening. Not a bad thing. There is too much cruelty, and maybe even worse, indifference in the world. I had heard the episode you did right after the 2016 election, and looking at current events, the wisdom of your observations about your native Wisconsin, which apply to my area just outside of Reading, PA, was profound. As I watch what is happening right now, I wish the people could really listen to other people instead of themselves all the time. I have taken enough of your time. Thank you so much, Phil. Thank you, Phil. I was very moved by your email and by your kind words about the show. I am glad that my voice conveys empathy. I definitely feel it on my end. It's in my mind when I'm talking, so I'm glad that it comes through. I agree. We need more empathy. My goodness, you are so right about listening to other people. I am glad I had the chance to listen to you via this email. Two more. We are building to a grand finale today, people. (laughs) These emails. Oh, boy. Wait till you hear the last one. Okay. Subject. A revel. This one's good too. Subject: a revelation and a thank you, dear Jack. I can be curious. After listening to your thought-provoking podcast on Saul Bellow, I searched for the most searched for words on Google, and a strange theory emerged. In response to your doubts on the future of literature, here are my thoughts. As an avid piano player. I never before drew the parallels between music and language, but if you take a look at the evolution of music, it reached a classical complexity around 100 years ago, the age of dissonance in Stravinsky and the age of virtuosic complexity in Rachmaninoff. Then things blew up. The complexity was getting out of hand, and the social order wanted simplicity and popularity, so new sounds were created. Whole orchestras were slimmed down to smaller bands. But then it picked up again. With the advent of new sounds, i.e. the drum kit, technology has served as steroids for music creation, and now drum solos have been replaced by a flurry of rapid hi-hat loops and will only get more complex again in the future. This, in my opinion, is happening to literature. Its complexity has blown up the bounds of language, and combined with increased social freedoms, we are at a phase of renaissance where language is evolving exponentially. Just look at website addresses and modern song lyrics. Young, popular language has become very simple now, but I think, given time, it will build in its complexity in a brave new world of technology, and a new wave of literature will form. As distanced from our concepts of literature as modern literature is distanced from Victorian literature. All in all, as long as there are humans... There will be a need to communicate via language. As long as there is language, there will not only be a history of literature, but also a future of literature. Thank you very much for your podcast. It is the only one I have listened to all the way through, and as a 17-year-old prospective medical student in England, 
This podcast is the only thing tethering me to a world of art when the world of science constantly beckons. William, <laughs> you could hear me laughing a little bit there. A 17-year-old. Can you believe how smart William is? Oh, wow. Wow. So many ideas there. Thank you, William. I'm glad to hear you are well-rounded. You are on your way to being a very well-rounded doctor in England, which is just the best. Doctors who enjoy literature and who are thoughtful and who can look around and see the world and have ideas in their mind. You are following in that great tradition of writers like Chekhov and William Carlos Williams. And Keats, too, who started out headed that way. Thank you for the email. Speaking of Keats, subject, a short comment on Keats. Now, this one, listeners, as you will hear, gets a little bit personal. It's a little bit exposed, a little bit vulnerable. So I asked the the emailer if I could include this in the show. And his response was, quote, yes, you can read it as long as you think it won't do lasting damage to the reputation of the show. (laughs) End quote. Ha, thank you. (laughs) So I have the green light. Subject, a short comment on Keats. Hey, Jack. Brian with a yo again. I am sure you, and if you read this on the podcast, your listeners are tired of hearing from me, but I had to write after your excellent two-part episodes on Keats, and then a subsequent episode on a literary battle between England and France. In fact, your excellent two-parter on Keats inspired me to write a poem, which I have attached with this email. I wrote it in all seriousness, but if it deserves ridicule, or an addendum to your bad poetry episode, I can take it. I've deserved such treatment many times before. Yet, in my defense, this is only the second sonnet I've attempted, and it is bound to have some rough edges. Writing it has been a joyous endeavor, and I am usually one who hates work. So in the end, it was time well spent. Then came your episode on your literary battle between England and France with you and Mike. In it, you pit the romantic poets up against Francis Baudelaire. And what happens next? Well, not only does Mike state that Baudelaire is the greatest poet ever, but he said that my one knock against the romantics is that they overdo it with the beauty. Life is not beautiful. Wow. I'm a bit partial towards the romantics. I don't think I heard much of what was said after that, except when you said something about how you thought the English army had overrun the French army. I could only agree. I had this picture in my head of the armies of English literary giants arrayed in battle against the French literary giants, and both sides with bloodletting weapons of gore and violence in their hands. Then suddenly Baudelaire, in a fit of self-indulgent navel-gazing, leaves France's left flank exposed. Jane Austen, seizing the opportunity, sends all her forces against France's left flank, which is turned, and sends all the French army scrambling for their lives, Victor Hugo and George Sand tripping and falling over each other, and the rest of the French army running pell-mell into the Paris suburbs. Wow. Brian, were you there? That is exactly what happened. I have it on video, I think. Poor Mike. Generalissimo Mike did not do so well in the in the England versus France battle royale. Okay, back to the email. At this point, 
I was about to send you and your show the angriest of screeds for a vile sacrilege, yet the one thing at least age has given me is the knowledge that one needs to give pause to one's passions. Upon another listen, I did hear Mike say that Mont Blanc was one of the best poems, and he respected your army. Also, I must admit, I really like Baudelaire's poetry, <laughs> especially The Flowers of Evil. <laughs> See? Good thing you gave a pause, Brian. <laughs> I have read some about Foucault, and he admired Baudelaire's thoughts on modernity. He said, modern man, this is a quote, quote, modern man for Baudelaire is not the man who goes off to discover himself, his secrets, and his hidden truth. He is the man who tries to invent himself, end quote, which I find an interesting concept. Anyway, all of this is to say that I have a suggestion if Mike is up for it. Mike could do a show on Baudelaire and why he is a better poet than any of the English romantics. He doesn't have to prove why he is the best poet ever. Well, thanks again for your show, Jack, and thanks to all your guests and everyone who helps put on the show. Also, thanks to all your great emailers and listeners, your flawed pupil, Brian. Okay. Thank you, Brian. I also echo the thanks to all the great emailers and listeners. And as a treat for all of you, let's hear Brian's sonnet, which he submitted for consideration. Here we go. The title is On First Hearing Wilson's HOL Podcast on Keats. <laughs> a little bit of echo of Keats right there in the title. Right? On first reading Chapman's Homer. Okay. On first hearing Wilson's HOL podcast on Keats. Here we go. Now midnight's flicker each unvarying light of Byron, Shelley, Keats. Unaided eyes see Byron midst the Pleiades delight. Till clashing Lucifer and sun's fame rise. Shelley's Cepheid pyre burns so hot and bright in Hercules's rebel fist. Eulogize. Naked sight scans a lamp at such great height, where dwell those urns and birds, poets fabulize, with Wilson's great refractor. Now we see, beyond false loves, dark plagues, and all bet noirs, raw Keats, and all in Draco's maw, the key, like an athlete who knows life's reservoir of time, takes fleeting talents, virility, we seize today. For tomorrow's memoir. Wow. I am speechless. Let's take a break and come back. Thank you, Brian. Let's take a break and come back with our look at some highly literary personal ads after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. The tango puts us in the mood, right? Okay, so I want to tell you first about the New York Review of Books. This is not a paid ad. I'm just going to tell you all about this publication. So I used to subscribe to, I don't know, 10 or 20 magazines and newspapers, if you count them all up, and a lot of them were New York-based. Maybe some of you remember these days when you get the... The New York Times, The New Yorker, The New York Observer. This is, I wasn't living in New York. I was living in Michigan. I was living in California, living in Seattle. And yet I got all of these publications sent to me. They all had New York in the title. I read a book by, what's her name? The Baltimore writer, Ann Tyler. Ann Tyler, of course. And there was, in the book, there was a husband who pointed to his wife. He pointed out the subscriptions, and he said, just what city are we living in, anyway? <laughs> Which made me smile. I felt seen by that comment. And now, these days, I've let most of the subscriptions lapse because I get the news online. Overwhelmed by news publications, except for the New York Review of Books which is kind of pricey, but I get it every year for Christmas, or my wife does. It's from my parents. They asked one year if there were any subscriptions they could get us. You know that thing with adults, right? You're trying to figure out what gift to get one another. You can only give towels so many times. And so they asked, well, what about a subscription? They were happy to have a gift idea for something we wanted. We were already getting it, but they took over the the subscription payments, and every year since then, I mean every single year, my mom asks us if we want to keep getting the subscription. It's so funny. I could have told her 25 years ago, we'll tell you if we don't. <laughs> but it wouldn't have mattered. She would have asked. Anyway, just to make sure, just to be safe, do you still want the New York Review of Books? Yep. It's the one. I guess we still get Consumer Reports in the mail, and we get a bunch of magazines we didn't subscribe to and don't pay for, which is a little odd. But the New York Review of Books is the one I don't want to give up. The one paper magazine I read. It's still the one I look forward to and read and generally enjoy the most. And I started reading it when I was in college when I was fascinated by the letters, letters to the editor. I remember Tom Stoppard being engaged in some heated battles with his critics, and it all seems so smart and witty and urbane. Good stuff. And I am also fascinated by the personal ads that run 
in the New York Review of Books. There are a handful of these. After you read about the Roman Empire and George Eliot and Arthur Conan Doyle and the future of space travel and whatever else people are writing books about these days, you can turn to the personal ads. I love reading the vacation rentals, thinking this is where smart people go. And the personal ads, this is how smart and bookish people date. There are only about eight or ten of these, but they are fascinating to me. One in particular caught my attention this week, and I thought, you know what? I should explore these on the show. So, for those of you who don't know, the New York Review of Books, which is not the New York Times book review, it's bigger and longer, and more like essays about books or other literary or cultural topics. The pieces are longer and smarter than most publications. They're more thoughtful. They're not as necessarily as timely. The, the writers get a little more time to breathe and a little more room to breathe, to expand. It doesn't have a wide circulation in the scheme of things, but it's a bit of a cultural signifier. Professors, professionals, a kind of upper crust, wealthy but artistic set of people. That's who I imagine reading it. People who keep things like the opera going. <laughs> people with family money, Maybe a few lawyers, maybe the odd businessman here and there, businessman, business person. So if you are looking for a connection from that world, someone who is like that, well, this would be a good publication to run a classified ad in. Why not? If you read the New York Review of Books and you're looking for a date, looking to meet someone, why not try to find someone else who's reading it too? The filtering has already been cut has already been done. I was going to say, the cut has been made. You read the New York Review of Books, you made the first cut. That's a pretty big, that's a pretty big cut. You're weeding out a lot of people by putting an ad in the New York Review of Books. Okay, but these ads are fascinating. I'm fascinated by what people are looking for and how they pre present themselves in these narrow little ads. So let's take a look at the first one here. First one. Charming lyricist. <laughs> nice. That's poetic, right? Charming lyricist. Not as pretentious as a poet. A lyricist. Maybe a musician or maybe just a writer. And a charming one. Not some snobbish lyricist. Not some angst-ridden lyricist. A charming Lyricist. Here we go. Charming lyricist seeks ultimate romantic collaboration with a kind, eclectic man who loves to laugh. Ultimate romantic collaboration is being sought. What is that? We're still talking about lyrics? Like lyricists collaborate? That's kind of a nice little turn. We see this person has a way with words. As we might expect from a charming lyricist. Lyricists collaborate, but she's not looking for a, a professional collaboration, a musical collaboration. She's looking for the ultimate romantic collaboration in life, a partnership. Is that what we're talking about here? Ultimate romantic collaboration means 
as romantic as it gets? Or does that mean marriage? Would you say that's the ultimate romantic collaboration? Or does that one of those signals that the relationship will include sex? You can see where I go with these. I'm fascinated. These words are carefully chosen. You pay by the word, I think. <laughs> you must, right? They're all, <laughs> they're all, that's how classified ads work. Okay. An eclectic man is being sought. A kind, eclectic man. Kind man, I get that. Eclectic man, what does that mean? Does it mean I'm willing to deal with a few quirks? So bring on the quirks. Or does it mean I was so bored by the last guy, I hope you have a few surprises for me, maybe a hobby or two? Or maybe it's recognizing that people feel eclectic. Does anyone think that? Does anyone think, oh, I'm not going to respond to the charming lyricist because I'm too eclectic. Nobody will love me. And this is saying... I'm here for you, strange person, eclectic person, person with many different interests. I'm here for you. And finally, the person being sought loves to laugh. There we go. A kind man who loves to laugh. That's right down the middle. Loves to laugh is perfect. Excellent way to spend three of your words. You want a guy who loves to laugh. Well, good luck to you, charming lyricist. Next up, curly-haired, late-twenties female... Writer seeks attractive, preppy intellectual for COVID-safe gourmet dinner parties, hot baths, too long runs. Must not have finished infinite jest. <laughs> oh, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> the winner. Curly-haired. Okay, curly-haired. Is that an ethnic reference? Is that a signal? Is that one of those that signals something? Or is it just to make sure that someone isn't disappointed? Are there people who only like straight-haired individuals? Preppy intellectual she's seeking. Okay, preppy. That's funny. I always thought that was something to be avoided. But I think what she means is probably neat and well-groomed. Maybe white. Not necessarily, though. It's kind of like... Hope you went to a good school, and I hope you like red wine, and I hope, you know, all that kind of thing. Hope you read the New York Review of Books, although <laughs> that is running in the New York Review of Books. Okay, COVID safe is interesting here. I'm glad people get that out in the open, that they want to be careful about that. Gourmet dinner parties, hot baths, and two long runs. Too long is hyphenated there going for runs that are too long. Hot baths. Is that a little sexy? Sexy without being too forward? As in, I'm going to refer to something that is done naked, but that doesn't mean we do it together. Right? I'm looking for someone who loves hot baths, not I'm looking for someone with whom to take hot baths. So, it's just racy enough to be in here. Imagine yourself naked in some hot, soapy water. But hey, 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 don't go too far. I'm sexy, but this isn't just an ad for sex. Okay, two long runs. That's kind of a humble brag, I think. It says, I'm fit, people. 
I am fit. I run and I go too far when I run. I'm not one of those who starts running and then gives up. I go too far and then I laugh and say, whoa, that was too long. I just got carried away, I guess. Swept away by exercise. Sorry. Hope you do the same. That's a very funny thing to mention. I'm intense. If that scares you, goodbye. I need some ambition here. I need you to keep up. That's what that suggests to me anyway. And then the best sentence of all. The reason why I'm doing these. Must not have finished Infinite Jest. Amazing. Simply amazing. You must be smart enough to know what Infinite Jest is. You must be cultured enough to have opened it and started reading it. But you must have had the good sense... To put the book down is not worth your time. The writer's saying, I don't want those troglodytes who have no idea what infinite jest is, but I also don't want those mouth-foaming advocates of David Foster Wallace. No offense to Mike Palindrome. And I, I don't want anyone dull enough to finish the book just because they started and felt like they had to. Must not have finished infinite jest. Must. Must not. It's a deal breaker. If you finished it, don't even bother. Don't even bother responding if you finished that book. Oh, boy. I am so in love with these personal ads. Let's keep going. They get better, believe it or not. Number three, scrumptious painter. <laughs> the charming lyricist versus the scrumptious painter. Hmm, boy. These people really know how to present themselves. That's amazing. Not beautiful, not beautiful mid-20s or not good-looking late-40s, not curvy or zaftig or tall or fit, scrumptious. And a scrumptious painter. Oh, man. Artistic. Oh, boy. I'm reading this like a letter I got that told me I won a prize. I can't wait to hear what the scrumptious painter is doing and is looking for. And this, is, this isn't even the best one, I'm telling you. These are amazing. Scrumptious painter, weary of lockdown, but unwilling to bail on love, seeks gentlemen, 60s, 70s, for all that is fun, genuine, creative, and sensual in life. Let's start with words. Hmm. Weary of lockdown, but unwilling to bail on love. That is very nice. Lonely without being desperate. Weary of lockdown. This is a person who's grounded in reality, but is finding room for hope. It's a perfect sentiment for our times. And the end is beautiful. Great use of four words. Let's start with words. That's nice. That's very New York review of books-ish. I'm a scrumptious painter. I'm visual. I'm appealing. But I have brains, too. Communication is key. We're not going to swap pictures. We're not going to jump into the sack. Let's start with words. Get to know each other. You're reading this New York review of books, after all. Calm down. Start with words. Very nice ad. Okay, number four. Listen to this one, people. Widower. 88, parentheses, but looks much younger. <laughs> 6'3", 190 pounds, 
retired tax lawyer, seeks tall, thin, elegant lady for marriage. Send me an email and I will send you a picture. 88, but looks much younger. Bravo. Tall, thin, elegant lady for marriage. Wow. What does this mean? What does it mean? Does that mean I'm 88? I don't have time to mess around. No casual sex for me. I'm not just here for good times and giggles. Let's start with words. No thanks. No thanks. Let's start with a ring and a ceremony. Wow. Or is there something else here? Is this saying, I'm 88, I get it. I'm telling you I look younger, but let's be real, I'm 88. Maybe I look 82. Maybe I look 70, 77. I don't look 25. I might not appeal to a tall, thin, elegant lady. That's what I'm looking for, but I get it. I'm 88. My options might be limited here, but I'm willing to get married. You might get half my money. Is that what this is saying? Saying I'm lonely. I could use some people in my life to help take care of me. I know I'm a bit of a risk. The next few years could be could see some hospitalizations and so on, but if you're willing to marry me, you could inherit. I was a tax lawyer. I have some money. That's the deal. Ah, oh, such an interesting personal ad. Someone writing a novel about these? I hope this person finds what he's looking for. It's a widower who's 88, but looks much younger. Seeking a tall, thin, elegant lady for marriage. If you are a tall, thin, elegant lady who'd like to get married and likes the idea of meeting an 88-year-old widower, reach out. I'll come back to number five. I'm going to skip over that one. Number six is right down the middle. Petite, attractive, educated, older woman Loves opera, competitive bridge, exercise. Love to meet smart, warm, sometime companion who's still curious. NY area. That is, petite is a signifier, so is exercise. The other things are right down the middle. Competitive bridge, opera. I'm smart. I've got some hobbies. I've got some things going on. I'd like to meet someone smart and warm who's still curious. NY area. Practical. Pragmatic. Good luck. Number seven. Also right down the middle. SWM mid-80s. Multilingual. Practicing trial lawyer. Seeks Ann Arbor slash Detroit. Remote companion to talk books, movies, music, and politics. Another one. Remote companion. Not sure what that means. Maybe it means I'm in Ann Arbor slash Detroit, but I'm willing to strike up a friendship or start a relationship with people remotely in the New York area. I'm not sure exactly what that means. New Yorkers are okay with me. But I like this one too. Good luck. SWM. Single white male. Mid-80s. Multilingual. 
like some good things, books, movies, music, and politics. Number eight. Wow. This one takes a turn. A little different from the others. Pansexual, anarchist, Asian femme, seeks partner in crime during bio-crisis. Me, 27 years old. That's 27-Y-O. Suffering from quarantine malaise, barely poeting, but still facetious. Interested applicants should be a wry and intersectionalist bad MFer. <laughs> this one jumps off the page, doesn't it? Barely poeting, but still facetious. Rye, seeking a wry and intersectional, intersectionalist bad MFer. If you are, if you're all these things and you read the New York Review of Books, you email wolfish at gmail.com. Good luck, wolfish. Okay. Two more. <laughs> oh, boy. Saving the best for last. Widow. Well, I don't know. I don't know if these are the best, but they're good. Widowed Margravine. Seeks breath. Widowed Margravine. I looked that up. Definition, wife of a Margrave. So I had to look that up. It's a member of the German nobility. It's like a marquee. It's below a prince, above a count. Definitely above a baron or a knight or the lord of the manor. Oh my God. It's way above that. Margravine. Imagine. Widowed Margravine seeks respite from coterie of sycophants. <laughs> as, <laughs> as do we all. Oh, my goodness. Enclose your most prurient poem. Ah. <sighs> Seeks respite from a coterie of sycophants. This is like another language. It has to be tongue-in-cheek, right? At least in part. But my goodness, the image of this. The widowed Margravine with her coterie of sycophants. Well, of course she's seeking respite. Who wouldn't be? Life is tough all over, people. This poor woman. I hope she gets some respite. Enclose your most prurient poem. Okay. So maybe this is, am I just completely clueless about this? Is this some kind of S&M thing? Am I just out of the loop here? Do they call each other by German nobility titles? I don't know. But if this is for you, you can email lasciviousmargravine at gmail.com. Okay. And now let me read, going back to number five. But first, let me read number one. Again, remember, charming lyricist seeks ultimate romantic collaboration with a kind, eclectic man who loves to laugh. Okay. Number five, New York City attorney, well-read and well-traveled, vigorous, eclectic, good listener. But life is more Seeks woman to share the adventure. Femmes francophones appreciates. Did you hear that, people? Let me read those again. Charming lyricist seeks ultimate romantic collaboration with a kind, 
eclectic man. And here's a New York City attorney who's got 20 words to describe himself. He says he's well-read and well-traveled. He's vigorous. He's a good listener. And he's eclectic. There we go. And he's a good listener. How's that for the ultimate romantic collaboration? A lyricist looking for someone who's eclectic and an eclectic man who's a good listener. Come on, people. Find each other. Okay. That was fun. I'm full of romantic optimism now for all of you lonely people out there. Maybe I should run some classified ads here. My listeners might, well, maybe that wouldn't work. They're scattered all over the world. But maybe we could match up some pen pals or something. Anyway, if you want to send me a classified ad, I'll consider reading it. If we get a few, maybe we can see how that goes. But that will be for another day. Today we're going to take our last break and then come back with Storybound. Jude Brewer is the host, and the story is written and read by Tommy Orange. I'm Jack Wilson. Enjoy the story, and we'll see you next time. This is Tommy Orange, and you're listening to Storybound. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. Coming up in one minute you'll get to hear Tommy Orange read his story, Copperopolis, with an original score by Ryan Dan of Holland Patent Library. And if you stick around until after the credits, you'll get to hear something special. So let's settle in for the show. On my days off, I walk the narrow blacktop roads of an area called Diamond 20 in the small town of Copperopolis. We're in the foothills of the Sierras now, just barely still in what can be considered Northern California. The sun's right above me, pressing on the back of my neck. I reach back and cover it, keep my hand there. It's the middle of the day in the middle of the summer, which out here means it's hot as hell. I'm just coming back from one, a hell. Or I'm still in one and I've gotten so used to it I started calling it something else. No, this isn't hell, it's just fucking hot. The heat here is dry and mean and everywhere. It crushes, seeps, floats up in waves like smoke from the pavement. Gets into the brain, slows thinking, 
I pass under the shade of an oak and look down at my shadow, which is joined by the shadow of a tree. So mangled by or mingled with branch shadows, it becomes a new thing, a shadowed object like and not like me or the tree, the blending of images only possible where light can't be. The shine of gold and tall dead grass makes me think of the people who came to these hills for gold, the rush to get to it. And then thinking of that time, thinking of those miners, makes me think of Indians who would have been here and been seen as in the way. I'm thinking of native people here because I am one. Not full blood, but enough. We natives are always looking for our presence in the absences. I look up on my phone whether there were ever Native Americans in Copperopolis. There's a small entry on an abandoned website about signs of human settlement dating 10,000 years back. Human remnants, it says. This makes me think of remains and how we use that word to describe people who haven't remained at all, but left what time didn't get at all the way. I look up as if to get out of the gloom of that thought and see turkey vultures circling what must be something dead or dying nearby. I think about how things must stink worse in the heat. There's a big field of tall dead grass the vultures are circling above. The stalks of yellow move a little from a hot wind that instead of cooling me just reminds me of how hot the heat is. I find that I'm swaying a little like the grass. I look down and watch my mangled shadow sway. My four-year-old son, Alex, isn't old enough to know how to be afraid of me the way the rest of my family is afraid of me. He still runs up to me when I come home, and I bend down and he holds my big head in his arms. He's just learned to say I love you. He knows what it means to say it and uses it sparingly so that it keeps its meaning. As for my ever-understanding wife, Anne... We haven't talked about what happened very much because when we've tried, something between us opens up too wide for us to know how to speak across it. My mother and father-in-law and my sister-in-law and her two girls, they either talk about me like I'm not there or they don't talk about me at all. Never mind talk to me. I'm a haunt they're afraid to be afraid of in front of because of what it might do to me. I don't blame them. I wouldn't want to talk to me either. I'd tried for a voluntary exit before my time had come with a razor. Voluntary exit is too clinical or noble sounding, a, a euphemism here, of course. Before my time had come isn't right either. Time and its length, the one we're given, is an elusive thing. There are exits everywhere for those of us who, actively or not, look for them. A train or approaching bus, 22 too many drinks, a sharp object, anyway. Much less common are entrances, ways in. Like the day we had our son. There in the hospital on my knees holding the bed rail and listening to the machines and my wife's breathing. 
There was paper constantly being printed out that showed the contractions, their size and length, like we were measuring earthquakes. There was something that made sense to me about how cute the pain seemed to be for my wife. Why that was part of birth, like a blow to the body from within. A magical wound from which a human boy came out. Things were good for the first several years of his life. Everything he did was a miracle. Sure, he was incapable, a mouth. But I didn't know what love was before he came. Not that kind of love, anyway. Before Copperopolis, those first few years after he was born, I was still telling people I was a poet. And then, to the expected follow-up question, no, but what do you do for a living? I'd say, videographer. Which wasn't a lie, but it wasn't exactly true either. I hardly made a living at it. I've been ready to sign a significant contract with a native nonprofit to produce promotional videos for their website. Then that job and a psychotherapist position my wife had lined up at the same organization fell through at the last minute after a sudden tribal leadership change. When we moved in with my wife's family in Copperopolis, I'd just been released from the hospital after going at my left wrist with a razor in the bathroom I was supposed to be cleaning in order to move out of our house in Oakland. I'd thought about suicide plenty before trying it. As it goes. It was the razor's angle in the bathroom. That little blade on the sink, square and flat against it like a self-destruct button I just then realized I could press. So I pressed it in deep than a cross. A dark purple circle appeared in the middle of my vision as I went to the ground. Later that spot would return, only white and not dark purple. The bright white of stars, away from cities, in a new moon sky. Or like the sun looks with your eyes closed after having stared at it too long. When I was on the way to the hospital, I felt untouched by the dark purple spot, and yet maybe about to enter it at the same time, levitating above its grasp, its gravity. When my wife found me on the bathroom floor, she told her mom, who was there to help us clean and move out, to take our son for a walk in his stroller. It was time for his nap anyway. The ambulance ride seemed buoyant to the point of pleasant before I passed out from losing too much blood. I don't remember any of what happened in the hospital. When I came to, my wife was rolling me out to the parking lot in a wheelchair. I felt refreshed, born again, as if into a new life. I got a job as a sandwich artist at the local subway. It's the first time I'm being paid and acknowledged as an artist. The subway is in a sort of shopping complex designed to look like an old-fashioned town, like maybe from the 50s. Except everything looks brand new. 
There's a giant clock tower in the center of the town square everyone calls New Old Town. I've recently taken to sucking on pennies and contemplating bank robbery. The pennies because there was an especially shiny brand new one out of a roll I broke to make smaller change for an impatient man with a sandwich I'd just made in his hand, lightly slapping the sandwich against his palm like a cop's baton. As he left, I popped the penny in my mouth and sucked on it. It didn't taste like I thought it would. It tasted good to me. Thoughts of robbing the local bank came to me after I made a cash drop for the first time the other day and noticed there was no bulletproof glass between the customer and the teller. I didn't know they still had banks like that. Robbing a bank didn't seem crazy when I thought about it. It seemed reasonable. I need to provide for my family more than I need the discounted sandwiches and day-old cookies I get to take home for free. My son loves the cookies and says it wrong. Like the cookie monster says his own name wrong on Sesame Street. Cookie. 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 In the new life, everything seems allowable. The star white hole is there every time I close my eyes. I've started to think of it as a cell. I've been thinking if I could split the cell, something important might happen. I close my eyes more now. Fascinated by the details I can sometimes make out inside the hole. It sort of shimmers at its edges. Or the edges blur if I stare too long, like it's reacting to my staring at it. My coworker, Sam, caught me with my eyes closed and accused me of sleeping on the job. Late night, he said, smiling and lifting his eyebrows like people do to suggest you got into trouble or something. No, I was... I started. He was laughing. I get headaches and it helps when I clench my eyes shut. Oh, he said, his smile gone. He went to the back to make more bread. I'd requested for my green name tag to say Thomas, which is my author name, Thomas Blaine. But my manager told me they, Subway, like to use shorter names on name tags. So it says Tom on my name tag. I didn't know if this was to save money on letters or because shorter names indicate a casual kind of friendliness and familiarity. Do I take putting sandwiches together as seriously as I do my poems? The scaffolding is similar. You begin the build in order to begin to build the order. What kind of bread? Toasted? No two sandwich orders are the same. Variance is the constant. Of course, poems aren't asked for or ordered. And how do you build a life? My life had felt like it was building to something that came apart, which I'm now attempting to rebuild behind sneeze guard glass. You are listening to Storybound. And now for a short break. Turn from our break. I'm lying in bed awake because I can't sleep. It's too hot. 
There's no AC here. It doesn't cool down at night at this point in the summer. I'm with my wife and son. We just have a sheet over us. I think they're asleep, but then hear them both shift in bed in a way that feels to me like they're awake. I don't know, though, and don't want to wake them if they're asleep. They might be awake thinking the same of me. Tom, my wife says. She can always tell when I'm awake. You can't sleep either, I whisper. It's that damn fly, she says, with a real, actual hatred in her voice. I haven't noticed the fly. Me too, Mama, our son says. So he's been awake too. All of us lying there, in silence. Something about it is so sweet and sad at the same time. I start crying without meaning to. What happened to Dada? Our son asks his mom. I don't know. Maybe he really loves flies and jokes. And this makes the boy laugh harder than I'd have expected. We all laugh, and Anne gets up and turns on the light, carefully stepping around the room, listening and looking for where the fly might land. I wipe my tears and sit up, looking for the fly too. There, the boy shouts and points to the mirror, where half a dozen flies are squashed from earlier in the day. My wife is an excellent fly hunter. You have to be still, then swift, without hesitation. She gets the thing, and it doesn't squish, but gets knocked against the glass, then falls to the ground. She steps on it, and I see the boy in my periphery look at me for a reaction to the death of the fly. It's okay, Dada, he says. Flies don't live long anyway. I smile at him in a way that tells him I'm not sad about the fly. It goes silent after that. Something about not living long anyway. Something about it being okay to die because of a shorter life makes me and his mom remember. I look up on the internet how to rob a bank without a gun. I watch a YouTube clip about a guy who robbed 20 banks by just writing a note and learn that bank policy requires that they give over the money, be compliant, no questions asked, even if no gun is present. I write several drafts of the kind of note I might write. This is a bank robbery. Put $10,000 in the bag and no one gets hurt. I analyze the note. Wonder at its faults. I want it to be plain and clear what is happening and how much money I need. But this, no one gets hurt. There's something beautiful about the idea of no one getting hurt. Also delusion. I want to strike that part of the robbery note and save it for a future poem called No One Gets Hurt. This is a robbery. Put 10,000 in the bag or else. I can't help but question this or else. The threat is vague as it is trite. And this else, else isn't specific enough. Else can be so much else. Do I need to declare this a robbery? I research more about bank policies and gunless robberies. There's a strict adherence to nonviolence being 
the most important possible outcome even if no gun is present. Sometimes customers don't even know what is happening while a robbery is happening. Bank policy and training ensures there is no scene or risk-taking. I need brevity and clarity. I'll shoot if you don't give me 10,000. I read the finalized note out loud. I'll shoot if you don't give me 10,000. It's terrible. It's the night before I'm going to attempt the robbery. We're all eating dinner together. Someone's put on old-sounding country or bluegrass. The way everyone is smiling at first makes me suspicious, like they're trying to make me feel better. We're having homemade Chinese food. Anne's dad is Chinese, grew up in Hong Kong. The kids are all laughing at something on YouTube. Anne's parents are in the kitchen. She catches my eye and smiles at me in a way that we sometimes smile at each other to say I love you without having to say it. We clink our glasses of rosé. When she gets up to go help in the kitchen, I wonder about whether maybe I was making it up all along that they didn't want to talk to me or that they think I'm too fragile. Maybe it's just that we're new to living together in the same space. They've let us stay here in their home. They cook and clean for us. The feeling doesn't last. Clarity never does. I go back to thinking about the money. What it could mean. I never consider jail time or getting caught. My plan is to say it was for a book of poems I'm working on. I'll tell them I was researching. I've even written some poems to show as proof alongside my notes for the robbery. The book will be about stealing and greed and hunger for gold. About how this whole country is based on theft of land and how much that all has to do with this region, this gold country. I can't sleep again. Alex and Anne fell asleep watching a movie out in the living room. My eyes are closed. I stare at the white light. Figures and shapes start to appear inside it, and I wonder if this is me falling asleep or getting a deeper understanding of the hole's insides. Had I torn something open in me? Stared at a strange star too long? While I was wherever you go, that memory can't come back from? In the hospital? After losing all that blood, I clench my eyes tighter, and what's inside the hole is the hospital room. It's Alex and Ann playing in the chair next to my hospital bed. They're playing a game where he hides something and she pretends not to know where it could possibly be. It's the game where he tells her it's magic, with a mischievous smile like we both know it's not, but let's pretend you don't know. The rest of the family comes into the room. Everyone we're living with now. Everyone I thought forgot about me. I feel stupid and selfish. I try to focus harder on the whole, see the scene. But just as I do, it all goes away and the whole is just white again. My wife comes in carrying our son. He's asleep. She lays him down between us. I was going to do something really stupid, I say. And there's a pause. She's wondering if I mean something else. Do something really stupid again. 
She's wondering if she even wants to have this conversation. What am I asking her to carry? It's not that, I say. What then? It's nothing. What? I'm not going, I say. You're not going to what? I said I'm not going, I say. To do something stupid. I mean, I'm sure I will. But not that again. No. Good, she says. We need you here. What are we going to do, I say. Things will change. They always do, she says. Not all change is good. Well, when it seems it can't get worse, the odds are better. True. Let's get some sleep. Do you ever see the image of the sun when you close your eyes even if you didn't look at the sun? What are you talking about? You mean like the floaty things you see when you close your eyes too tight or jam your fists into your eyes? No, this doesn't float. This stays right in the middle. In the middle. Yes. Okay, well, you can go up to the Indian clinic if you're worried about it. I'm not worried. Well, maybe you should be. Thanks. I'm kidding. I was going to rob the bank. What? With a note. You're tired, Anne says. I couldn't get it right. Everything I wrote down was awful, I say. You've been writing again? I guess I have. This story, titled Copperopolis, was written and performed by Tommy Orange, first published in Freemans, California. The musical score for this episode was composed by Ryan Dan of Holland Patent Library. Make sure you check out the original comic for this episode, drawn by Shane Milner, which is now available on our Instagram and Twitter at StoryBoundPod. We would also like to thank Maya Solovia for her scheduling assistance, as well as Tim Carplus for mixing this episode. Storybound is arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. This show's theme was developed by Grain Table, and thank you to Modestus Mancus for this outro sample. You want to tell us what you think of the show? Well, you can find us on Twitter at StoryBoundPod, or you can tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are released every Tuesday. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.